Chapter 9, Part 1 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953. Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Marine Air Support At 1000 on the morning of 18 September, an HO-3S-1 helicopter became the first American aircraft to land on Kimpo Airfield since June. Mopping up operations had scarcely been completed following the enemy counterattack when Captain Victor A. Armstrong of VMO-6 made a vertical approach with General Shepard and Colonel Krulak as passengers. They were greeted by General Craig, the ADC, who had just arrived in a jeep. The field was in surprisingly good shape, considering the fighting it had seen within the last few hours. As evidence that the enemy had been surprised, one Russian-built fighter of the Yak-3 type and two Stormovik-type aircraft were found relatively undamaged and turned over to Air Force intelligence. Several other Yaks and Stormoviks had been destroyed by the enemy. On the return trip, Armstrong was requested by his passengers to fly them across the Han for a preview of the outskirts of Seoul. Except for scattered small arms fire, the helicopter was allowed to proceed without being molested by the enemy. There were few signs of extensive NKPA preparations to be seen at this time. Helicopters and OIs in Support VMO-6, the Composite Observation Squadron commanded by Major Vincent J. Gottschalk, had already made a name for itself in the Pusan perimeter actions. Consisting of eight HO-3S-1 helicopters and an equal number of OI planes, this former brigade unit came under the operational control of the 1st Marine Division and the administrative and logistical control of MAG-33. During the Inchon assault, VMO-6 was based on Skyjap LST Q079 in the harbor except for an OY attached to each of the two CVEs. The first of a long sequence of helicopter rescue missions during the Inchon Seoul operation took place on D-1 when First Lieutenant Max N. Nebergall picked up a Navy pilot who had ditched in Inchon Harbor. Flights carried out by other aircraft were reported as three reconnaissance, two artillery spot, three beach reconnaissance, and one utility. VMO-6 displaced ashore the next day to an airstrip improvised near the Division CP by the Marine Engineers. This was the beginning of liaison, utility, reconnaissance, evacuation, and rescue flights on a dawn-to-dark basis. Division Air and Naval Gunfire representatives of the Fire Support Coordination Center followed VMO-6 ashore on the 16th. During the planning phase, they had worked with their opposite numbers of FIBGRU-1 and with the 11th Marines after the division landed at Kobe. Although some of the officers and men embarked for Inchon in the Mount McKinley, the material and 90% of the personnel arrived in the President Jackson. At 1400 on D-plus-2, the FSCC became operational after all elements of their equipment reported to the Division CP. Responsibility for the coordination of supporting arms ashore was assumed at 0630 on 16 September for air, at 1500 on the 17th for artillery, and at 1800 on the 18th for naval gunfire. 
The rapid advance of Marine ground forces during the first three days meant that Major Robert L. Schreier's 1st Signal Battalion had a job on its hands. The main body reached the objective area on board the President Jackson, and the first units ashore were the Battalion and Regimental Anglico teams, most of which had embarked in LSTs. When the ADC group displaced from Walmido de Inchon, radio facilities were maintained without a hitch. Radio and message center facilities met all requirements during the night of 16 to 17 September. Teletype, through radio carrier, was initiated between the Division CP and Corps afloat on the Mount McKinley. And by the morning of D plus 2, such progress had been made that wire communications was established not only with both advancing infantry regiments, but also with most of the battalions. Enemy resistance was so ineffectual from 16 to 18 September that the Marine Infantry Regiments were able to advance without much flank protection. The three battalions of the 11th Marines did more displacing than firing in their efforts to keep pace, and men and vehicles of the Signal Battalion were kept busy at laying wire. Security was provided for the left, or northern, division flank by the attack of the KMC Regiment, lest the 2nd Battalion left behind for police duties in Inchon, under the control of the 5th Marines. Attached to the regiment, for possible use in calling down naval gunfire, were two shore fire control parties. Objectives on Corps Phase Line CC were reached without much difficulty after the initial KMC setbacks described in the previous chapter. Marine Air Units at Kimpo there had been little or no urgent need for close air support until 18 September, when RCT-1 met stubborn opposition in the Sosa area. Thus, the capture of Kimpo in comparatively good condition was a timely boon, since it meant that land-based marine tactical air support could be initiated as soon as Captain George W. King's Able Company engineers made the field operative with temporary repairs. This was the conclusion of Generals Harris and Cushman, commanding the 1st Maw and TAC-10 Corps when they visited Kimpo by helicopter on the afternoon of the 18th. They advised CG-10 Corps accordingly, and that evening he ordered the deployment of MAG-33 to the captured airfield with its headquarters and service squadrons. The tactical squadrons figured in an administrative switch that has sometimes puzzled chroniclers of marine air operations. By order of General Harris, the following reassignments were directed to take effect on 21 September 1950. From MAG-33 to MAG-12, VMF-214, VMF-323, and VMF-N-513. From MAG-12 to MAG-33, VMF-212, VMF-312, and VMF-N-542. Both MIGSIS-1 and MTAX-2 were already ashore at Inchon under the operational control of the 1st Marine Division. Aircraft and flight echelons of the tactical squadrons were to be flown to Kimpo on the 19th from Itazuk and Itami airfields in Japan, with the remaining elements following by surface shipping. Thus, MAG-33 would consist of these units. HQSQ-33, SMS-33, VMF-212, VMF-312, VMF-N-542, MTAX-2, MIGSIS-1. 
VMFs 214 and 323 would continue to operate from the carriers Sicily and Badong Strait, with the night fighters VMFN 513 being based as usual at Itazuke Air Force Base in Japan. The only difference was that a scratch of the pen had transferred these units from MAG-33 to MAG-12. It was their responsibility to support the advancing ground forces during the critical period while the other three tactical squadrons were making the move from Japan to Kimpo. Control of tactical air support had passed from the TADC on the Mount McKinley to the air support section of MTAX-2 on D-2 after the landing force commander signified his readiness to assume it. Calls for close air support were increasing as the enemy recovered from the first shock of invasion. On the 18th and 19th, the three fighter squadrons of MAG-12 flew a total of nearly 50 close support sorties controlled by the air support sections of MTAX-2. Napalm, 20mm ammunition, rockets, and 500-pound bombs were used to blast NKPA troop concentrations in the zone of the 1st Marines. Logistical as well as tactical administrative problems had to be solved. During the planning phase, it may be recalled, Colonel Kenneth H. Weir, Chief of Staff, TAC-10 Corps, had learned that 10 Corps would not have enough trucks to support air operations at Kimpo by transporting aviation gasoline and aircraft munitions from Incheon. As a solution, arrangements were made to accept the offer of FIF Combat Cargo Command to provide logistical support. This proved to be the largest total for a single week during the Incheon Seoul operation. In addition, about 1,025 tons of POL and 425 tons of ammunition were trucked from Incheon to Kimpo during the entire period, and the forward echelon of VMR-152 flew in spare parts and items of urgently needed equipment. Headquarters of the 1st Maw remained at Atami Air Force Base in Japan, though General Harris made frequent trips to Kimpo. The chief task of the wing during the Kimpo Air Operations was furnishing administrative and logistical support to TAC-10 Corps and MAG-33. TAC-10 Corps set up its headquarters at Kimpo Airfield on 19 September, followed by MTAX-2, MIGSIS-1, and VMO-6. The first fighter squadron of MAG-33 to arrive at the new base was VMFN-542, Lieutenant Colonel Max J. Volkensek Jr., the commanding officer, and five pilots landed their F-7F-3Ns at 1830 on the 19th after a flight from Atami Air Force Base. This was the baptism of fire for a majority of the squadron's pilots. Numbering 54 officers and 274 enlisted men when it left El Toro, VMFN-542 had only 20 trained night fighter pilots. The remainder were volunteer reservists qualified by a good experience level and a desire to become night fighters. The squadron claimed the distinction of flying the first Marine combat mission from Kimpo at 0735 on the 20th when four of the F-7F-3N aircraft destroyed two enemy locomotives after expending some 3,000 rounds of 20mm ammunition. The Corsairs of Lieutenant Colonel Richard W. Wachowski's VMF-12 and two aircraft of Lieutenant Colonel J. Frank Cole's VMF-312 also landed at Kimpo on the 19th and got into the action the following day. Conditions were primitive at the outset. 
In the lack of refueling facilities, the first strikes had to be flown on fuel remaining in the aircraft, and bombs were loaded by hand. It had been an achievement to have two tactical squadrons of MAG-33 in action less than 48 hours after the reconnaissance landing by Generals Harris and Cushman. The accomplishment owed a great deal to the care shown by the 5th Marines to keep damage at a minimum. Lieutenant General George E. Stratemeyer, C.G. Fief, expressed his appreciation of this factor in a letter to General Smith. I want to take this opportunity of expressing my admiration and gratification for the manner in which elements of your division recently captured Kimpo Airfield and so secured it as to make it available for use by Far East Air Forces and Marine Corps aircraft in the shortest possible time. Progress of 8th Army Offensive General MacArthur had intended the 8th Army to be the hammer and 10th Corps the anvil of a great joint operation. During the first few days, however, it sometimes appeared as if these roles were reversed. On 18 September, after a penetration of 16 miles on the 10 Corps front, the attacking forces in the Pusan perimeter had just begun to inch ahead against desperate NKPA resistance. In some sectors, indeed, the enemy not only put up a stubborn defense, but counterattacked vigorously. The 8th Army now consisted of the U.S. 1 Corps, Nine Corps did not become operational until 23 September, and the ROC One and Two Corps. General Walker's command was already on the way to becoming the most cosmopolitan army in which Americans have ever served. Contingents of British ground forces had reached the front, and before the end of the year, 40 countries of the United Nations would have offered assistance, either military or economic, to the fight against communism. Most of this aid had not yet materialized on 16 September, but the 8th Army had overcome its disadvantage in numbers of trained troops thanks to NKPA losses when it jumped off all along the line in southeast Korea. In the north, the 1st Cavalry Division, 24th Infantry Division, ROC 1st Division, and British 27th Brigade launched a determined attack along the Taegu-Wegwon axis to win a bridgehead across the Noktong. It was nip and tuck for the first three days, and not until the 19th did the UN forces fight their way across the river against the last-ditch opposition of the 1st, 3rd, 10th, and 13th NKPA divisions. Still farther north, the enemy relinquished little ground until the 18th. On that date, the ROC 3rd Division recaptured the east coast port of Pohangdong, which the invaders had taken in their drive during the first week of September. In the south, the U.S. 2nd and 25th Infantry Divisions and attached rock units were held up for three days by the NKPA 6th and 7th Divisions. The deadlock lasted until 19 September, when the enemy fell back in the Masan area along the southern coast. Major Joseph H. Reinberg's VMFN 513, operating out of its Itazuk base, played a conspicuous role in the first days of Walker's offensive. Although specialists in night fighting, the Marine pilots flew 15 daylight close support missions for Army units from 17 to 19 September. Enemy troops, tanks, vehicles, and artillery were scored during every strike as the planes ranged the entire extent of the Pusan perimeter. Division CP displaces to Oyoso-ri. 
So much progress had been made by this date on the Ten Corps front that General Smith displaced the 1st Marine Division CP from the eastern outskirts of Incheon to Oyosori, about a mile and a half southeast of Kimpo Airfield. This forward location was selected by General Craig with a view to preliminary division planning for the crossing of the Han, which would entail a reshuffling of units. Oyosori, having been an American housing area during the post-World War II occupation, duplex houses and Quonset huts were available. General Smith arrived by helicopter on the afternoon of the 19th, and the new CP opened at 1645. During the next few days, the area was treated to intermittent artillery fire, apparently from a single well-hidden gun somewhere in the Seoul area. It was an embarrassment to Marine artillery officers, who were never able to locate the offending weapon, but no great harm was done. By this time, General Smith could look forward to the arrival of more units at the front. On D-Day, the strength of 10 Corps on paper had been 69,450 ground force troops. In addition to the 1st Marine Division and 7th Infantry Division, there were such major units as the 93rd and 96th Field Artillery Battalions, the 73rd Tank Battalion, 56th Amphibian Tank and Tractor Battalion, the 2nd Engineer Combat Group. In GHQ UNC Reserve were the 3rd Infantry Division and the 187th Airborne RCT. The 3rd Division had not sailed for the Far East in time to take part in the Incheon Seoul operation. The 187th Airborne RCT, due to land at Incheon on 23 September, had been the answer to General MacArthur's requests in July for paratroopers to land behind the enemy's lines in conjunction with the amphibious assault planned as Operation Blue Hearts. Although the Joint Chiefs of Staff decided against flying an airborne RCT to Japan at the time, the 11th Airborne Division was later directed to organize and train such a unit for service in the Far East. On account of the large proportion of new troops filling out a skeleton unit, General Collins stipulated that the 187th was not to be committed for an airdrop before 29 September. It was decided, therefore, that the RCT would be given an initial mission of protecting the left flank of the 1st Marine Division. End of Chapter 9, Part 1 Read by Aaron Bennett